0: just being able to stand up on a stage in front of that many people i think it gave me a lot of faith in my own voice at a very early age
1: what are the connections that can change a person's
0: life that sense of like we love you and we're proud of you no matter who you are or where you are
1: hey there i'm mark finnell and this is hey guess what presented by telstra podcast all about the biggest moments in your life and the people that you wanted to share that with. The people that knew exactly what you were thinking, what you were feeling when those turning points
0: happened. And they knew that because those were the people that helped get you there. I guess be lucky that you got to have such amazing people in your life because some people don't get that.
1: Today on the show, she is an actor, a very funny one. She's an award-winning writer of plays, of television, of the Women's Weekly. Yes, that is a real thing. She's a proud Gamilaroi and Torres Strait Islander. She's also kind of a survivor. That's right. Nakia Louie was born in Mount Druitt in Sydney. And look, on paper, at least, you could say that she's had a very tough life, but... To her, it's actually been a really privileged life compared to some, which is a, such a Nakia way of seeing things. Like, she has this huge drive and determination. Uh, she, of course, bursts out of the screen with personality. But in person, like, to talk to her, incredibly humble, like, almost shy. But then again, that's just my interpretation. If you ask her to sum herself up, this is what she get.
0: Mum always talks about how (laughs) in every tribe, oh, I'm cringing as I say this, there's like a storyteller. (laughs) Yes. Um, And I guess because I was never really good at sports, I'm super clumsy. I have bad eyesight. I can't weave. I can't dance. Like, I feel like if, like in pre-colonial times, I would have been like the dud of the tribe.
1: One of the things I was particularly curious about, like looking through this cavalcade of achievements is... What would you say is the defining moment for you? Was there ever a moment where perhaps in hindsight you look at it and go, huh, wow, a profoundly different Nakia went into that moment than the one that came out at the other end?
0: I was just thinking about like when I was probably in grade eight, I entered the local St. Mary's Legs Club, (laughs) Talent Quest, (laughs) and I did this um, stand-up routine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, kind of like a one-woman show. About dying and then waking up in a heaven and how disappointing heaven was. <laughs> like, That's good. It was a really, kind of big things, big uh, yeah, ideas, really big ideas. Um, but um, I guess in terms of that, I was just thinking about that, like how far back early as you can go, and because I kind of forgot that I'd been performing as early as that. Yeah. And um, I think for me, it was this idea that I could get up on stage and put a story down on paper and perform it and have faith in it. And I remember getting that phone call that I was, like, coming through to the wildcard round, and it was just, like, it was as exciting as, like, getting a phone call to say, like, your TV show's been commissioned today. You know, because I was a really nerdy kid, and I was, like, very overweight, and I think the only Aboriginal person in my high school year. Mm. So... You know, I'd hear like a lot of kind of like abo jokes every day. Um, and also just aside from that, just that general, I think being a teenager and like not not like feeling like there's so much, like, you know, the, the angst of, of yeah. being. So I think for myself, just being able to stand up on a stage in front of that many people and have confidence in something I wrote and have it resonate. I think it gave me a lot of faith in my own voice at a very early age.
1: I've heard you say that um, between the ages of like six and 16, you heard an Abbo joke every single day. Yeah. What do you think the effect of that is on a person's sense of self?
0: I think it's something I hang on to it every single day. Like, I don't think it's something I've gotten rid of yet in my life. Um, You know, I'm really lucky that I have quite a few dear friends who are also Aboriginal who have, you know, had this similar experience and those conversations I've had with my mum and my siblings and my dad who, you know, have gone through the same thing. And I speak to some of my younger siblings now who maybe don't have it as bad, but they still know the same jokes. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of what happens is you, I think you kind of feel like you don't have a sense of worth. And so you're always trying to, for myself, I guess try and find some type of external approval to say that you were good or you were just as good or not being better, but you feel like you have to be better just to be treated as equal.
1: So much of the Nakia that you hear today has been forged through her family and her community. So Nakia's parents, Jenny and Jack, they started the Budacarbon Aboriginal Corporation in Western Sydney. Now, this is an organisation designed to contribute to the social, the economic, the emotional and the cultural development of their Aboriginal community. But the thing is, at Budacarbon,
0: they built something much more than that. It's a house on uh, Pringle Road in Hebbisham in Mount Druitt that runs a lot of different programs that always has food in the fridge for people, telephones and computers to use. It's a place that they can go um, if they need help, Um, but also it focuses on, it's changed, but a lot of it, you know, when it originally started, um, they used to do like a lot of sewing groups. So in particular for women who didn't have like high literacy or numeracy skills, were in domestic violence relationships, maybe had uh, substance abuse problems. Um, And you're talking about, you know, a lower socioeconomic um, community with a high Aboriginal population. So, you know, I grew up with those women as like kind of my aunties. My mum would always kind of make me go, I used to have to clean the toilets there and stuff like that. But that's Um, still an amazing community
1: to be raised
0: amongst. it teaches you not to judge. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And to my parents were always very much like you. That could be you, and somebody you know. They may have made different life decisions to you, or they might not have had the same opportunity as you. But they're just as human as you, and they have the same worth as you. So they were very strict about us not being pretentious or judging people. <laughs> Which,
1: for a theatre theatre writer, is an important thing to have.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. But yeah. I think
1: it's a really it's a really fascinating point how different do you think you would be if you hadn't been raised around having that connection to that wider community?
0: Oh, look, I think I'd be a completely different person. You know, those values of being mindful of your community, being empathetic, of keeping in check what you find important in life. Mm. And it gives you purpose. You know, when I kind of think, oh my goodness, I'm like, oh, like what if my writing career dries up? What if my next work fails? Or what if people don't like it or it doesn't rate well? Or like, you know, what if I have this fear of everything always just totally collapsing around me yeah. and having no control. Um, I kind of think, well, number one, like, why are you telling these stories? Yeah. And a huge part of that is because of how proud and it makes my community and I think the place that it's given a lot of people to speak, and I just know that from talking to... um even Arnie's or, you know, the messages that you get over like Instagram and Facebook and emails and stuff.
1: This is a, a strange one and I guess answer to the extent that you're comfortable with, but have you ever felt like you haven't lived up to the expectations of that community? Because that's a lot to carry. Like it's a lot to carry the expectations of a community like that.
0: Um, you know, I... Oh gosh this is um you know when i was at uni mm. and when i was especially in my first three years of university so i started doing arts law that's ultimately what i ended up completing but um it just took me a really long time <laughs> afterwards but um in those first three years i particularly in my third year of uni i really struggled i had a lot i have I had a lot of issues with um my mental health i think because of that pressure because yeah. I had this expectation of what an Aboriginal, a successful Aboriginal person is. And that's going to, or just a successful person. I know they don't want to define it by Aboriginality, but I think that cultural aspect does play a role.
1: I, I did want to ask you a little bit more about your parents, because they do sound kind of amazing. Jack, in particular, like he was a boxer that turned academic.
0: So yeah, my dad was a, he was the son of a drover and he didn't use a toilet until he was like eight. But then he got six. <laughs> He said he got really scared. He was really scared of toilets. So he used to go guna, which is an Aboriginal word for poo, like out, the, out in the backyard. <laughs> <have to> <laughs> He's going to hate me for telling this story. Um, all and, the more reason to do it. Yeah. Um, and then they moved um, into Sydney from out near Dubbo, and like out. They would go around that, all of that way, which is very far west New South Wales. Um, when he was probably like later... Primary school years, beginning of high school, and he got into boxing. And he went over to New Zealand. He travelled for it. Um, then he said he discovered he discovered grog and women. So there went the boxing career. And then um, he discovered teaching, well, academia later in his life. I think in like his gosh, it would have been like late twenties, early thirties. I'm not too sure about those numbers. Um, and he d- discovered a love of learning, which he kind of had never had access. He didn't think. I guess you know going to university for people like my mum and my dad given their social class as well at the time which was very poor um it wasn't like a you would it wasn't like uh, I guess like an option so I think it was there that my dad discovered a real love of academia yeah um and and it kind of changed his life i think and it's where he's most happy
1: how much of jenny is in you
0: uh Get too much. <laughs> um, Let us itemise them. In. <laughs> yeah. Um, she. She was. So she grew up in a tent by the river near, um, Yangla Dam. I think they used to call them Dam Kids. Uh, and her dad had was a prisoner of war in World War Two, and he came back with PTSD. Like he lost his brother there, and, um, and emphysema, and so he was when all the soldiers got back a lot of them were given um, houses. So in the suburb, I grew up in St. Mary's, you see a lot of the soldiers' houses down by the train tracks. Um, but my pop got these, all he got was dog tags, um, and we still have them, and they say that basically he was an honorary white man. And so what that meant was that they couldn't also live on the mission. He didn't have a lot of work they could do. So they uh, grew up in these tents by the dam, and they moved along the, the river. And um, my mum said they were like the cleanest tents that you could ever think of. Um, and so she didn't live in a house, I think, until she was twelve. And then at fifteen, left school to come become a nurse, a nursing assistant. But she was really like, there's a lot of things I think similar. She's pretty headstrong. She's really compassionate. She's really kind. Yeah, she's I got a yeah a lot of traits from her. I think some some things I didn't like. My mum. Terrible, terrible performer. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Let
1: me get that. What about Grandma Joan? Where does she fit into your life?
0: Oh, so she was like my second mum. She was my best friend. So I was really close with my nan and my pop growing up. Um, My pop passed away when I think I was about seven. Mm -hmm. Um, But then my nan, like, she was my best friend, um, which never felt lame, probably sounds lame, still doesn't feel lame. She was like really, you know, I would spend every afternoon of school at her place, um, every like school holidays. She loved to read. She was really funny Um, and she was pretty liberated. Like I feel like we always say if Nana was born in a different era, she would have been, like I think like a lot of, people, like women in people's lives, like who knows what the possibility of what they could have done. She was really headstrong. Like she's like, for instance, like she loved condoms. Sorry, what? Like she (laughs) thought condoms were like the best invention in the entire world. (laughs) So she like couldn't get over it. She just thought it was amazing that like women could have sex whenever they wanted, as much as they wanted and not get pregnant. (laughs) She couldn't, she couldn't understand And I had a lot of cousins who were having teen pregnancies at the time, and she thought it was their access to condoms that was like, which is probably part of it. So one day she made me run into the local Aboriginal medical service. Keep in mind, I'm like 15, maybe 14, like 120 kilos, like definitely the one in the family not having sex. And she made me run in. And, like, go up to the front desk where, like, I knew the Arnie's. was, like, a bunch of Donovan women. So it was like, Arnie, Bev, and all that, who, like, were working at the um, AMS. And I had to run in. They had these, like, condo men. It was yeah. this Aboriginal superhero who of was course. all about wearing condoms. <laughs> so I had to go in and, like, she made me, like, grab all the condoms to, like, this the make story. sure that, like, <laughs> everybody had condoms. And I like, was so embarrassed. I felt, like, just looking at me, like... You right then. You right then, Nikki. I'm <laughs> oh yeah, just, just, getting, there, just get, getting all the condoms, just having, just prepping for the weekend. Yeah, um, yeah. She was. She sounds amazing. She was good fun. Yeah, she was but, a storyteller.
1: And and actually, on that, the love of reading, the love of writing. Can that be traced back to to grandma Joan?
0: Yeah, definitely. She like really valued reading and writing and she thought it was so lucky that my sister and I got to go to school. So, oh, since I was little actually, I forgot about that. She would always tell us, "Oh, you're so lucky that we well, number one that you have that you have a mum because her mum passed away um when she was younger." Um so she was like, "You're so lucky that you have a mum. Never take for granted your your mum and dad." And then she um said, you're so lucky that you get to go to school because that wasn't something that they had available to them.
1: At 15, Nakia earned a scholarship to the prestigious Pearson College on the west coast of Canada, which is, you know, obviously a massive honour. It's a long way from Mount Druitt to Vancouver Island. Thing is, that connection to her mum, to her grandma,
0: to her community, it was always there. My mum ran these sewing classes. Um, and so, before I left, um, and I think this is, you know, is a really lovely example of think of what community means and um and that support uh, is they they made this big, huge quilt for me to take with me. And it was on the quilt was all of these photos of basically, like my family, my childhood. And the women, all the women had sewed it together for me before I left. I get like a little I don't want to get too teary thinking about it. but, um, yeah, it was really beautiful. And you know, having that many people care about you and like put the effort into to doing that. and um i I think that's so that you won't feel alone when you're taking. I mean, I was fifteen. i it was scary. When I first got there, I wanted to come home straight away. Mm -hmm. And I had that blanket on my bed that entire time I was there. And it's just that idea of, you know, community of that little small thing that they all had all done that for me. And I think that also to me was that sense of like, we love you and we're proud of you. And then at the end of my school year, my godmother died and my dad had a very big heart attack and he was was planning to come pick me up and we were going to I've um around Canada together mm. um, and and I was doing my exams, and then that kind of happened, and it, it was really hard, you know, and, and when the way my godmother passed is um, it, they knew it was coming, so I had to arrange to have the last phone call and figure out what I would say to her. And I think that was I haven't talked about that this in so long, sorry. Um, okay. yeah, and I think that's you know that that anchor, just having the images. So you knew you were going to be
1: the last phone call.
0: Yeah, we weren't always speaking to her. I knew it was going to be my last ever time I was going to speak to her.
1: What do you say when you know you're going to have that conversation?
0: Um, you know what? So I got on the phone and and because I think it's the performer in me, which this is just so this is so cavalier. It sounds horrible. It's, it's you're always thinking of like the perfect way a scenario could go, and I've like scripted it out in my head. And you know, if it's a movie, I'm like, I know, like I know my cuts and like. My close, and like, you know, I've, I'm always kind of, maybe it's my way of having control. Like, yeah. I have a narrative around things. You get on the phone and it's just kind of like, thank you for loving me. You, it just goes out the window and you're trying to hold back tears. So I end up having to write her a letter that they then read to her after it because I was so, I was had such a lack of articulation on the call. I, I, I cry a lot. As I'm getting teary now, I'm a big sook. So, you know, it's like all those grand plans go out the window and all you can really say is, I guess, be lucky that you got to have such amazing people in your life because some people don't get that.
1: It's an amazing thing to to have and to keep your emotions close to the surface.
0: Don't ever apologise for crying.
1: From growing up in Western Sydney to then attending this school for global citizens on the other side of the world... At this point, Nikki was on this sort of track to go to uni, get some sweet, high-paying office job. In her words, it was to be that good, smart Aboriginal girl and make the community proud. The burning inside was this other calling, acting.
0: Oh, yeah, I went to get an agent when I was a kid, which my mum is quite funny um, thinking about it now. But, um, like, being a really, really fat kid and teenager has played a really defining... Like, it's something I think about so often. I wanted an agent. I really want to be, like, a child actor. Mm. Like, I really... And I went through the yellow pages. And I remember trying to figure out, like, what even an agent was. Like, like you know, what, what was I looking for? And I got the names of some, like, child agents. But my mum, I think, was really hesitant to let me have... To get me into acting because I used to do the local pantomimes with my community theatre as well, um, because she she was really worried about the criticism I would receive because of my appearance, mm. and she kind of didn't want it to crush me. Like, she didn't want to expose me to that in a way. Um, so, yeah, mum didn't let me get an agent. Also, she probably didn't want to have to drive me into stuff. And yeah. also, it's really weird. <laughs> like, who wants to make their child
1: work? What I'm hearing here is, like, there was obviously, like, Creativity, writing, performing—it was all like it was all there. What I don't get is how you end up doing a law degree.
0: Well, I think it's like any type of. I think this is a really similar story to any kind of like family that you know is striving for upwards mobility, mm. right? Uh, is you go I'm gonna get my kids an education and they're gonna like become professionals in my community? It's like engineer, doctor, lawyer. Yeah. Um, and so they were like, "Well, she's mouthy, she's loud, she's creative." To the drama queen, <laughs> lawyer, <laughs> lawyer, like you'd be perfect for law school. Also, too, you know, in in my family, um, like a lot of my family have been in jail, so I grew up a lot going to jails. I think I've gone to like every jail in New South Wales by the time I was like nine or eight. I remember my brother was in Bathurst jail for a while there. And I used to love going to visit him at Bathurst Jail because he used to be able to take food in. Oh, yeah. And so that was the only time we would ever be able to, like, eat KFC. So I'd be like, yay, Bathurst Jail, get to see my brother, I get to eat KFC. But, um, yeah, but I thought I was like, so I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go be, like, a criminal lawyer. Yeah. And I, then I'll become, like, a criminal barrister because you get to wear a wig, right, love a bit of camp, mm. um, theatrics. So I had the grades, applied, got in, and um, that was that. When did it
1: start <laughs> to go off the rails?
0: I, you know, it started off okay, but then increasingly I just had this feeling and just this growing feeling of, I just can't see a future doing this. Mm. It just felt hopeless in a way. I don't know how else to explain it. It was And like for just, a
1: person that's got like not an inactive imagination, to be able to not see your own future is got to be a pretty big wall to come up against.
0: Yeah, it was terrifying. I felt so unhappy and... I kind of, you know, I didn't like going to class, you know. And I also remember my first day, the f- not my first day, but my first week of law school, this this, this lecturer said to me, isn't it great that you've made it so far? And I just kind of, there was a lot of kind of slightly things like that, you know, at every turn. And You've had a lot of that, haven't you? Yeah, it's, it's tricky because you carry it with you. Mm. And you have to, there's a time where you have to separate yourself from those labels. Um, and you have to realize, like, you have to realize how they're constructed and it's not about you, even though you have to wear it. I think that was always a really big, that was a really big learning curve that came for me much like, like, that's only something I'm still trying to do now. But, um, you know, things like that, you know, being late for class and, you know, like someone going, well, you know, like you don't want to be late, like all the time, um, once because, you know, they're kind of insinuating that Aboriginal people are late all the time. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. just things like that. So I had to, there was a bit of that, that kind of trickle away, just kind of chip away and at your And that's the thing,
1: it just, all your self-worth is sort of like gradually being it. And of course, in this time as well, there was also something really big, which is Grandma Joan.
0: Yeah. So what happened to her? So my nan lived in a housing commission house in state, North St. Mary's. And what had happened was they were doing like a development, like a new uh, estate, housing estate. And so they, in that area, they chopped down all the trees and there was a lot of white termites there. And so they started eating away at her house. So I had a room in there called The Little Room. And in the little room, there was a nest of white termites about the size of a basketball coming out of the wall. And there were two of those oh my God. in her house. And she, mum was really worried that she would fall through the floor, especially given her age. And that's, you know, older people fall through falls and, and, and die. And, and then, yeah, she did fall through the floor. And then within about a year, she was dead. So I took a year off to care for her. And it, it was, you know, I think it, it's really horrible. She was in a lot of pain. And it wasn't the way that she died was so to me. And it's still, I'm still kind of trying to come to terms with it. But at that point in my life, you know, I was like, oh, I'm like, you know, trying to do the right thing. Like I'm doing everything that you tell me it is to become someone with power, yeah. you know, like um trying to articulate yourself on the phone. And and it just felt like we let it, like we we couldn't fix it. And and it, it felt like for a long time for me, it felt like it was my fault she passed away. But, um, Why your fault? I guess, you know, thinking like I could have tried harder, I could have done better. I think my mum felt the same and I was just like so angry. Nakia channelled that hurt,
1: that anger and that sense of injustice at what had happened to her grandmother and she just pushed it into her writing. She wrote plays, stories, she wrote her experiences and pretty soon accolades started rolling in invites to young playwrights festivals followed by invitations to be the writer and artist in residence at Sydney's Belvoir and Griffith Theatre which followed the Dreaming Award from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Arts Board of the Australia Council, the inaugural recipient of the Balnaves Foundation Indigenous Playwright Award, the Malcolm Robertson Award, the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award 2018, the Nick Enright Prize for Playwriting. Then she starred and co-wrote the sometimes controversial ABC series Black Comedy created her own series Kiki and Kitty, then the groundbreaking theatre production, Black as the New White for Sydney Theatre Company. Okay, I've, I, there's too many things. There's too many things. I'll, I'll stop. But I think the point is this, in eight years, she's come a long way since that RSL club. And yet it's so much still rooted in that connection to her community, to her family.
0: What they're really proud of is that they saw where I started. You know, when I decided to write I had to and not go back to uni full time. I had to give up my all my scholarships and everything. I had to, you know, kind of, um, well, I cleaned toilets. I became a cleaner for a while. I had to think if I had to move home. Mm. Um, I kind of had to start again in a lot of ways. And so I think for them seeing me try something and commit to it and find something that made me happy, I think for them that's what really matters.
1: A lot of the the stuff that you engage with, both in in your creative work and I, I guess also online as well, like you don't shy away from talking about race and class and privilege. And, and so a lot of these topics I think lots of people regard as being risky and political. But what's interesting about you is that you don't really think about those things as quote unquote political, do you?
0: No way. They're, they're human because those are the things that like they're, they're part of our experience. So we look at them as political as that we can opt in and out of it, Mm. but we can't opt in and out of these things. They're things that create our communities for better or for worse. So we should be talking about that. They're things that we experience as human. It's part of our human experience. You know, I think the fact that I'm Aboriginal and grew up, you know, for example, around people who didn't have as much privilege as me or experience that racism has definitely influenced my, you know, my capacity for empathy, or, you know, how I practice my compassion, that's being human. Those are like innately human values that, that we define as humanity. Like if there's one thing I've learned from being a writer and sitting in an audience and having, you know, it's like, I'm not that special. If I'm thinking it, someone else is thinking yeah, it. Yeah, totally. So just say it.
1: <laughs> I've heard you talk about some pretty dark stuff about um, suicidal thoughts yeah. and feeling worthless. And I think that that sense of worthlessness that you referenced earlier, like, after all of the things you've been through, how do you tackle that now? Like, how? How? Do, what's your way of of working through those those feelings? Because they don't just disappear,
0: right? No, and and the reason I talk about them is because you know, unfortunately, you know, there was one week in my family, like in my community, where there were three deaths, and two of them were suicides, and you know, suicide is it's a problem. Like it's it's a problem in Australia, mm-hmm. within different groups, and in particular, within my community. It's a huge problem with Aboriginal people, in particular young people, and I mean all forms of it is incredibly tragic. So I speak about it because you know, I, I feel like with all the people who have taken their lives in in my community and my family, it's always been such a surprise. So I think it's really important to talk about these things. And if people see, you know, if they see me who, you know, I, in, so, in so many ways I have success and privilege and that privilege because of, you know, my work uh, and success, if they can see actually, no, that person is struggling as well and I'm not alone, it's a way of just vocalising it and being able to, I think, have control over it mm-hmm. or... um not be ashamed of it or the the baggage that then carries.
1: Some of the stuff that you say, um, I am mean, like to put it lightly, people get pissed off. Yeah, and that that's been a process I think that's um, been ongoing for a few years, particularly with social media. How do you relate to that now?
0: Um, I like hearing people's different, like contrary to like my big mouth and my angry Twitter thumbs. <laughs> I, you know, I, I really appreciate hearing other people's opinions because I I'm not an academic or you know, I'm not a social commentator by trade or a journalist. Or this, you learn a lot from other people. <laughs> Pig revelations. <laughs> <laughs> but um mind. I did take a year off uh writing op eds and going on um panel shows. Going on panel shows. This is probably one of my I think one of my first podcasts I've done yeah. in a while. Thank you. Um I was getting trolled a bit. And I hate when people throw around this term troll for people who just just uh, disagree with you because I don't think that's um it's different that's different, but it was kind of I was getting a lot of um it was starting to get some frets, but i found um i I kind of had to take a step away and kind of refocus on my work yeah and because I'd found a little bit of the um The criticism and also some of the, you know, um, I had some people send things like you get sent stuff to your house.
1: Yeah, I've
0: had that. Yeah, you think that it doesn't affect, I go, I put on this bravado and I was like, no, this actually is really starting to affect me. I was getting scared when I went out in public places, but it also just was making me really, really doubt myself in a way that I had like taking me all the way back to when I was, you know, all of that work of, you know, kind of... I was. I felt like I wasn't able to be brave because I kept second-guessing every single thought I had.
1: For all of the rough times, there's still those special moments where she still gets to see this work come to life on stage and be witnessed by the ones she loves most. And for Nakia, those moments, they're kind of sacred.
0: I remember when I was... Fifteen, And it was my first term at school. I remember we went to Sydney Theatre Company for one of their um, education shows and we caught the train in and I remember walking down at Sydney Theatre Company, it's at the Wharf at Welsh Bay, and as you walk down there's all these um, production images framed from all their different shows. That feeling of anticipation of, of oh it's gonna happen I think that that's like it's hopefulness it's all possibility possibility yeah. yeah walking down getting that feeling and and just thinking that that place was magic and how wonderful it was um and I was just wondering if I ever will come back here but then I remember when I had um I think in particular the opening of black is the new white for my first ever opening at that that Theatre company. And like, it was you're surreal. Flashbacks? Yeah, that it was my show. And that it's always, as you're walking down, there's groups of people and they're dressed up, like getting a wine and the chatter and the ding, ding, ding at the theatre bells. And it's exciting. And and then it's that idea of like, oh shit, they're here for me. A couple of my aunties came and my mum. And um, yeah, and they were the people who made the quilt for me. And so it was kind of surreal. I'm like, oh, this is, like, I never thought this could happen. What did it mean yeah. to be able to
1: have those women that made that quilt for you? What
0: What did it mean for
1: you to be able to feel them in that room with you experiencing that moment?
0: Um, it makes you feel, like, proud, you know, um, even though, you know, I kind of think pride's like, you don't want to be too <laughs> prideful. I, I mean, my work's dedicated to my mother and these women, My father as well and my uncles and my community. It's like those characters and those jokes are you. And so I hope in a way it's like when they see themselves on stage and they laugh at it. And I've seen this. I've seen this happen like with my auntie Mavis, who's like in her late 80s and comes to the theatre. You know, like that joke's for her. Mm. And I think, I don't know, being able to do that and making people feel joyous and seen like being able to do a little bit of that for me is um is such a joy and a gift because they did that for me my nana used to always say like reach for the stars and take everyone <laughs> which is slightly like, I just kind of ruined it with the back end of it. <laughs> I just took the first part of the message. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't have been able to do that without them. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have, you know, I don't know if I would have been the person I would be today if I didn't go to Canada. You know, um, I don't know if I would have had the confidence I ever would have had to feel like I had any worth in this world if it wasn't for them telling me I did. You know, they lived in a world that didn't want them, but yet they created a world where I could have a show on at STC because one day I just decided that's what I wanted to do. And for me, I think that's what hope is, is you create hope for others.
1: And in case you're wondering, Nakia told me later that her parents do still have that quilt. It's on their bed. Uh, massive thank you to Nakia for chatting to me about her life, her work, the moments that made her and the connections that made those moments mean something and... And I just say thank you to you. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you're just hearing this for the first time, you can subscribe on whichever podcasting app you happen to like. And if you do, please leave a review. It's a, it's a particularly helpful way in which other people can find the series and I give you preemptive thanks. My name has been Mark Fennell and thank you for joining us on Hey, Guess What? presented by Telstra. I'll catch you next time. Bye.